So in 2009, a man called Steve Watson was working as an audiologist in what's left of the NHS when he decided to enroll in the first Faber Academy course in novel writing. The result is now the stuff of publishing myth since its release in 2011 before I go to sleep has sold. I couldn't work it out early because I lost count. How many millions of copies worldwide? I mean, I know it's a million here. He's looking at his agent. How many millions of copies worldwide? Five to six million. Five to six million copies in over 40 countries. I didn't know there were that many. Um, and has been adapted into the film starring Nicole Kidman, Mark Strong, and Colin Firth. How do you follow that? Let's find out. We're thrilled he's chosen the salon for the world premiere of Second Life. Please welcome S.J. Watson. Um, I'm going to read um, a couple of sections from the book, um, Second Life. Um, the first section is from the opening chapter, uh, and we join <clears throat> the main character, Julia, who um, is working as a photographer, uh, taking photographs of uh, children, families, dogs, things like that. Um, but she, when we join her, she's just been to visit an exhibition of um, art photography um, because one of the photographs that she took some years previously has been displayed there. And we join her after the exhibition where she's um, uh, about, or she's just had lunch with her best friend, Adrienne, and she's just about to ask a question. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Julia is about to ask a question about her sister. <coughs> I'm kind of diving in in the middle of a scene, which is why I'm trying to give the background there. Um, have you heard from Kate? I looked down at my drink. I hadn't wanted to ask the question, not so soon, but it's out now. I'm not sure which answer I'd prefer, yes or no. She sips her wine. Not for a while, have you? About three weeks ago. And? I shrug. The usual. Middle of the night? Yep, I sigh. I think back to my sister's last call. Two in the morning, even later for her, over there in Paris. She'd sounded out of it, drunk, I guessed. She wants Connor back. She doesn't know why I won't let her have him. It isn't fair, and by the way, she isn't the only person who thinks Hugh and I are being selfish and impossible. Connor is her son, sorry. She was just saying the same old thing. Maybe you just need to talk to her again, I mean, when she's not so angry. I smile. You know as well as I do how much good that's likely to do. And anyway, I can't get hold of her. She won't answer her mobile, and if I ring the landline, I just get her flatmate who tells me nothing. No, she's made her mind up. Suddenly, after all this time, all she wants in the world is to look after Connor. And she thinks me and Hugh are stopping her for our own selfish, our own selfish reasons. She hasn't paused even for a moment to wonder how Connor might feel, what he might want. She certainly hasn't asked him. Once again, it's all about her. I stop talking. Adrienne knows the rest. I don't need to carry on. She knows the reasons Hugh and I took my sister's son, that for all these years, Kate has been happy with the situation. What neither of us knows is why that's changed. Will you talk to her, I say. She takes a deep breath, closes her eyes. For a moment, I think she's going to tell me I have to sort it out myself. I can't come running to her every time I argue with my sister. It's the sort of thing my father used to say to me. But she doesn't. She just smiles. I'll try. <clears throat> I can't resist going through the gift shop on my way out. They'd wanted to use my picture of Marcus on the cover of the brochure, but I never replied to the email, and instead, it's a picture of an androgynous-looking guy sucking on a lollipop. 
I didn't reply to the request for interviews either, though that didn't stop one of the magazines, Time Out, I think, running a piece about me. I was reclusive, they said, and my picture was one of the highlights of the exhibition, an intimate portrait, both touching and fragile. Bullshit, I wanted to reply, but I didn't. If they weren't reclusive, I'll give it to them. I look again at the lollipop guy. <clears throat> he reminds me of Frosty, and I flick through the book before moving over to the postcards arranged on the display rack. Normally I'd buy a few, but today I just get one, Marcus in the mirror. For a moment I want to tell the cashier that it's mine, that I took it for myself, and that though for years I've actively avoided it, I'm still glad they used it in the exhibition and I've had the chance to own it again. But I don't, I say nothing, just murmur a thanks, then put the card in my bag and leave the gallery. Despite the February chill, I walk most of the way home, through Covent Garden and Hoburn, down Theobald's Road in the direction of, of Grey's Inn. And at first I can think of nothing but Marcus and our time in Berlin all those years ago. But by the time I reach Rosebury Avenue, I've managed to move on from the past, and instead I'm thinking about what's happening here, now. I'm thinking about my sister, and hoping against hope that Adrienne can make her see sense, even though I know she won't be able to. I'm going to have to talk to Kate myself. I'll be firm, but kind. I'll remind her that I love her and want her to be happy, but I'll also tell her that Connor is almost 14 now, that Hugh and I have worked hard to give him a stable life, and it's important it isn't upset. My priority has to be to make her realize that things are best left as they are. For the first time, I allow myself to consider that Hugh and I probably ought to see a lawyer. I turn the corner into our road. <clears throat> There's a police car parked a few doors from the house, but it's our front door that's open. I begin to run. My mind empties of everything but the need to see my son. I don't stop until I'm in the house, in the kitchen, and I see Hugh standing in front of me, talking to a woman in a uniform. I take in Connor's towel and trunks drying on the radiator. Then Hugh and the officer turn to look at me. She's wearing an expression of perfect, studied neutrality. And I know, that it's, I know it's the way Hugh looks when he's delivering bad news. My chest tightens. I hear myself shout as if in a dream. Where's Connor? I'm saying, Hugh, where's our son? But he doesn't answer. He's all I can see in the room. His eyes are wide. I can tell that something terrible has happened, something indescribable. Tell me, I want to shout, but I don't. I can't move, my lips won't form words. My mouth opens, then closes. I swallow, I'm underwater, I can't breathe. I watch as Hugh takes a step towards me, try to shake him off when he takes my arm and then find my voice. Tell me, I say over and over, and a moment later he opens his mouth and speaks. It's not Connor, he says, but there's barely enough time for the relief that floods my blood to register before he says, I'm sorry, darling, it's Kate. So, um, Julia finds out that her sister has been um, effectively bludgeoned to death in an alleyway in Paris, where she lives. Um, over the next few pages, 150 pages, <laughs> uh, she discovers, um, she meets up and becomes friends with her sister's best friend, Anna, um, and discovers that her sister was using um, internet dating sites to meet men. Um, and frustrated by uh, the police's efforts to investigate this, Julia invents a profile of her own on one of these sites, and we join her now um, when she is about to meet somebody who she has been chatting to on one of these sites. Um, it's a man who um, she's fairly convinced has no connection with her sister, but what intrigues her is that this man um, began their conversation with the words, you remind me of somebody, and seems very keen to 
keep the conversation going. Um, so I'm going to read uh, a section where Julia comes to meet and have a drink with this man. <clears throat> it's a particular reason I've chosen this section. <laughs> <coughs> we reach St Pancras. We reach St Pancras. The car sweeps up the cobbled drive. The door is open for me. I feel a breeze on my neck as I get out and go into the hotel. The doors slide open and marble stairs lead into the relief of the air-conditioned interior. The roof above us is, of gla is glass with iron girders, part of the old station, I guess. It's all elegance here, cut flowers, the smell of lemon and leather and wealth. I look around the lobby. Two men sit, in, sit side by side on a green sofa. A woman in a suit reads the paper. There are signs, restaurants, spa, meeting rooms. Behind the reception desk, all is busy and efficient. I look at my watch and see that I'm early. I take out my phone, no messages. I wait for my breathing to slow, my heart to stop its insistent alarm, its attempts to warn. I slip off my wedding ring and put it in my purse. My hand feels naked now, as does the rest of me, but without my ring, what I'm about to do feels less of a betrayal somehow. At the reception desk, I ask for the bar. The guy is young and impossibly good looking. He points me in the right direction and wishes me a nice day. I thank him and step away. His eyes burn into me as I retreat, as if he knows why I'm here. I want to turn around and tell him it's not what he thinks. I'm not going to go through with it. I'm only pretending. Lucas is sitting at the bar, his back to me. I'd worried I wouldn't recognize him, but he's unmistakable. He's wearing a tailored suit, though as I get closer, I see he hasn't bothered with the tie. Some effort, but not too much, like me, I guess. I'm surprised to see a glass of champagne in front of him, another in front of the empty seat at his side. I remind myself I'm here for Kate. I walk over. Lucas hasn't seen me yet, and I'm glad. I want to arrive suddenly to be there before he's had the chance to appraise me from a distance. He's ten years younger than me and looks it. I'm nervous enough. I don't want to risk seeing a flash of disappointment as I approach. Hi, he says when I reach him. He looks up. His eyes are deep blue, even more striking in real life. For the briefest of moments, his face is expressionless, his gaze invading, as if he's unpicking me learning me from within. He looks as if he has no idea who I am or why I'm there, but then he breaks into a broad smile and stands up. Jane! I don't correct him. There's a momentary flicker of surprise and I realise he thought I wouldn't come. You made it. He's grinning with relief, which makes me feel relieved too. I sense we're both nervous, which means neither of us has all the power. Of course I did, I say. There's an awkward moment. Should we kiss, shake hands? He pushes my drink towards me. Well, I'm glad. There's another pause. I got you some champagne. I wasn't sure what you'd want. Thanks. I might just get some sparkling water. I slide into my seat and he orders my drink. I look at him at this unshaven, blue-eyed man and again ask myself why I'm here. I've been telling myself it's to find out whether he knew my sister. But there's more. Of course there is. I wonder whether I'm being naive, whether it might be him she was going to meet that night. The thought assaults me. It's brutal. The man in front of me looks incapable of violence, but that means nothing. It's not only those who have shaved their heads or inked their bodies that are capable of wielding weapons. I remind myself of what I've seen, of where he was in February. I begin to calm down as my water arrives. There you go. You're not drinking? No, I don't. I see the familiar readjustment that people make when I tell them. I know they're trying to figure out whether I'm a Puritan, possibly religious, or an addict. As usual, I say nothing. I don't need to make excuses. Instead, I look around the bar. It used to be the ticket office. People would queue here before boarding their train, and many of the old features, the wood panelling, the huge clock on the wall above us, have been retained. 
It's busy. People sit with their suitcases or newspapers. They're eating lunch or afternoon tea. They're in transit or else staying in the hotel above. For a moment, I wish I were one of them. I wish the reason I find myself here could be that uncomplicated. As if for the first time I realise Lucas has a room just a few floors up. The reason he thinks I'm here swimming to swims into focus. Are you okay, he says. There's a tension in the air. We're hesitant. I remind myself that he thinks we're both single, and that even if the path, his path has crossed with Kate, there's still no reason I should be finding this difficult. Fine, thanks. I pick up the glasses if to prove it. Cheers. We chink our glasses. I try to imagine him with my sister. I can't. I wonder what would usually happen now. I imagine Kate or Anna. I know she's done this kind of thing too. I see kissing, tearing at each other's clothes. I see people being pushed onto a bed in fevered lust. I see naked bodies, flesh. I sip my water. When I put my glass down, there's lipstick on the rim, and I'm shocked momentarily by its color. It seems bright, as if it's in technicolor. Plus, it's not what I wear, not in the middle of the day. It's not me, which was the point of wearing it, of course. I feel lost. I thought this would be easy. I thought I'd meet him, and the answers would spill out. The path to the truth about what happened to Kate instantly become clear. But it's never felt more muddied, and I don't know what to do. How does that feel? Relieved. Yeah. Relieved. First we've read that out loud. Well, in front of... People. 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 Um, now, it's incredibly twisty and turny, mm. this book, um, and I'm not going to give away um, um, any of the twists and turns beyond what, what you've said, mm -hmm. um, but it, it, is, it is compelling in, in that way where you need to know what's going to happen. You don't quite know um, right until the end. Um, there are some similarities mm. um, with your first book in that, again, you've chosen... A narrator who's a who's a woman who's struggling to find out who she is, and I know that Christine was based on a real life amnesiac case. But was the yeah. what was the basis for this woman? Because she was um, Julia Jane. Julia Stroke Jane, yeah. Um, I suppose many things. I'd, I'd been thinking a lot. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with identity, really, and by the way we manipulate it. Um, and I, I, she came. It, 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 there wasn't such a kind of spark, I suppose. Christine, in Before I Go to Sleep, kind of came from nowhere. She was just fully formed, whereas Julia was sort of more constructed by me <laughs> as a kind of cipher. But I wanted to think... I was thinking a lot about um, somebody who um, doesn't know themselves again, actually, in a very different way to Christine in Before I Go to Sleep, who very obviously doesn't know herself. But Julia is also somebody who doesn't know herself, um, doesn't realise the situation that she's in, and doesn't realise the vulnerabilities that she carries. Um, what are those? Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's giving anything to wake, away because it's, it's probably on page one. But, I mean, she's an addict, essentially. She's, she's an ex-alcoholic um, who, has, who has been um, dealing with other addictions as well. To me, it's a book about addiction, actually. It's a book about um, the, the way that we cannot know the, uh, how powerfully grip we're, we're being held in by something which is outside of us or by part of us. It's interesting because you mean she's addicted to substances, mm. and then she goes in search of the the killer of her sister, mm. um, and she convinces herself that she's going online and, and using her sister's profiles. And it's this, these sites, by the way, are not Guardian Soulmates. <laughs> um, and you know she's going on there looking looking for her looking for her sister, um, posing as her as her sister. But to me, it seems what she's addicted to is is the kind of the, the, the thrill of, of contact, of being, mm. of being desired, of being wanted. Yeah, I mean, I, 
actually, I suppose it's another, it's another similarity before I go to sleep in a way, actually, that she's, she's with somebody who, you know, she's with her husband, Hugh, is lo- who is lovely, you know, um, 10 years older than she is, um, very stable, kind of her rock. Sometimes rocks are boring, aren't they? And I, and I think that's, that's also something that she, that she... It's, again, about somebody who kind of is thinking, well, is this really it? And although she's not really aware that that's the journey that she's on, that's the journey she finds herself on of, of, you know, is there more to, should there be more to life than this? And suddenly this new world opens up for her. Which, where she can morally justify mm. it is, I'm not being, you know, a lady who wears that colour of lipstick. I'm trying to find trying out to about, find my, out about my, my sister. sister yeah. And she, so the hotel is a major part um, of, of, the, of the story. And mm. I was wondering when you came to the hotel and it became <laughs> part of the story. <laughs> no, so but yeah. there is something about hotels that enables people yeah. to be somebody else, isn't there? And she yeah. she she couldn't do this at home or even in in Lucas's house. No, I, I think we become anonymous in a hotel, don't we? You know, we can, nobody really knows why we're there, unless um, you're here for a salon. Uh, well, you? yeah, um, I, you know, often we're there. We're in hotels because obviously because we're away from home, which often means we're away from home and we've left all of our responsibilities behind. You know, or at least some of them. Um, we're often there without our partners. Um, I think it, you know hotels are kind of playgrounds, aren't they? Or they can be, um, and it does kind of fascinate me. I think um, the way we can shrug off certain masks and put different ones on in a hotel. You can wear different clothes. You can be a different person. Um, a lot of the action also takes place in Paris, mm. um, and I'm guessing you must have had to go there and research those those yeah. locations. Tough job. Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I did actually <laughs> quite a lot of research. Um, Chris was mentioning Google um, uh, Maps, so, or you know, that was quite handy too, actually, just to plot the you know the geography of getting from one place to another. And so, but yeah, um, you know, there's nothing you, you, you to go and soak up the atmosphere and really understand what a place is like. You know, um, knowing that a lot of it you're not actually going to use in the book. I mean, I, c- I could take you to the alley alleyway where. Um, Kate is That's a real place, mm. is it? Okay. Yeah. That's I mean, still going to be on a tour. <laughs> <laughs> really? Do yes, you think? I think probably yeah. yes. Um, and so th- that your first novel was written um, as part of this writing course, mm. and so kind of not necessarily written collaboratively, but written in a group, you know, atmosphere yeah. where you were getting lots of, you know, and there are good things about that, and there are bad things mm. about that. Um, and this was not. This was this was written on your. How was the process different for you being without without those people, and also with the burden of the five to six, gosh, or five to six million bestseller. Five to six million. Um, it was a different process, obviously. I mean, um, I felt much more um, alone. Um, I don't. I'm not somebody who always finds it easy to reach out for support. And I don't always find it easy to accept it when it's handed to me either, so which can make me very difficult to live with. Um, His husband is here. <laughs> Just. Deliberately not looking, <laughs> uh, in case he's nodding furiously. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the Faber Academy was great because there was that support network there and, and everyone was very enthusiastic about the book. Um, the way I write, it, it kind of, things are built layer on layer on layer on layer, and so it was, it's kind of difficult to, um, to know when it's ready to show other people. Um, so it did. It, it felt a very different process, um, and you know, I'd be I'd be lying if I said I wasn't kind of aware of this hypothetical five to six million people mm. who were kind of wait. Some of whom, at least, are kind of waiting for the new book. And so, whereas I wrote before I go to sleep in this blissful ignorance, thinking, well, maybe 
you know, five or six people might like this. There was an element there of thinking, well, I've got to make this so that five or six, you know, this, this, this readership, this audience I have um, will like it. When we, when we first talked about Before I Go to Sleep, you were saying that you'd not originally written as a thriller and you realised, you know, thanks to, to points that your agent, wonderful agent, who is also my agent, um, had made um, that, that it was a bit of, that you'd written a thriller mm. sort of subconsciously. Mm. And this very much consciously is, is a thriller. I mean, obviously you made that, made that decision. Did you feel like you maybe wanted to write something else? Or you thought, do you I'm, know what, I'm a thriller writer and I'm going to do that? I went, through quite, I went through quite an interesting, well, interesting for me, anyway, I'll try and make it interesting for you as well, <laughs> process of actually, when I, when I started the book, um, I thought, yes, I'm, I'm a thriller writer, I'm going to embrace the fact I'm a thriller writer and write a thriller. Uh, and actually, through the course of, of writing it, I, I had to stop that and actually go the other, the other way and try not to write a thriller again and to try and connect with the things that I find interesting. Um, not that I don't find thrillers interesting, obviously, but I suppose with Before I Go to Sleep, what happened was, you know, I wrote the book I wanted to write about, characters I wanted to write about, and it turned into a thriller. And, and writing this book was a process of realising that if I just took a step back almost and didn't try and force it to be something, it, that would happen again. And that is what happened, because those are the kind of books I love. Those kind of twisty, as you say, twisty, turny, page turners. Twisty, turny, and twisted, and also twisted, yeah. quite scary. Um, and... Obviously, the first novel was was adapted for film. How involved were you with that? I mean, because that that almost happened before. I mean, I think that did happen before the novel mm. came out. It was optioned, and then mm. I don't know really if you were writing on it or if you know. I didn't really have very much to do with it at all, apart from just go and, and enjoy the whole process. And uh, you know, I, it was it was for me. It was about well, first of all, knowing what my strengths and weaknesses are. Secondly, having a deadline to write another book. Um, but also just, it was plausible deniability. I thought, you know, it, you, I've heard so many stories about movies that don't quite get made, or they do get made, but they're crap. So I just thought, well, if I have nothing to do with it, then, you know, I'm not going to be disappointed if what comes out at the end of it is a, is, a, is a terrible film. And yet, if it's a great film, which I think it is, I can sit there and go, well, of course, I wrote the book it was based on. So <laughs> it was kind of a win-win situation for me. So I just used to... You know, Rowan, the director um, and screenwriter, would send me copies, you know, drafts of the script, and I would comment. But my comment generally was, "Yeah, it sounds great." I like that it became a video diary. I thought mm. that was a nice yeah. twist. The thing yeah. you can do in a film that you yeah, can't absolutely. do very easily in in a novel. Mm. Uh, did you get to touch Nicole Kidman at any point? <laughs> <laughs> I nearly blinded her. Actually, um, we were had we had we had. Uh, there's no way of saying this without sounding like <laughs> No, just go on. When I was having dinner with Nicole Kidman, um, afterwards, uh, well, actually, I didn't really have dinner with her because the food didn't arrive, but that's a whole different story. Um, it was the night of the premiere, and I, I le lent in to do the whole kissy-kiss thing, which I find difficult enough anyway. So, are we going to kiss or not? Or what's going to happen? But well, you're not going to make out, but you know, there's no, going yeah, I mean, to be a social kiss, aspect. I was wearing yeah. these glasses, which extend quite away, <laughs> and just straight in the eye. She, she was very polite. Oh, and Nicole's eye? Yeah, yeah. So Did she, she feel it? Well, she didn't say anything. She's okay. quite elegant and demure to say anything, but I felt a bit bad. Poor Nicole. But I'm pouring out. Is this going to be a film? It has to have been optioned, surely. Um, it's early days. Don't be coy. I, well, there's, there's, no, there's no story. It's okay, early days. okay, okay. Um, it's hard. People are interested, which is nice. Okay. Um, I didn't write it to become a film, but obviously I'm not going to complain if somebody wants to turn it into one. It feels more like telly than a film. Because in part because it's so long, but mm. episodic in the where it's mm. set, it seems like it would be easy to do it that way. Mm. And t I think there's some great things happening in TV. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be, um, 
I wouldn't be devastated if it became TV and didn't become a film. Okay, questions for Steve, who is now SJ. Not from his agent. <laughs> questions? Just my hand is ranging wildly. Okay, fine. The question I have, which is I know probably one you don't want to answer, which <laughs> is about um, the fact that it's a two-book deal and you have a new book to do after this. Have you thought about what that might be at same I've, show? Yeah, have, You've I've, started I've it? I started it, yeah. I started it on Wednesday. I mean, I started it weeks ago. <laughs> 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 no, I'm writing it now. Um, but just because I think um, it, it's, it's, ni it's nice to be able to write. <laughs> yeah, I've started it. you started it. Yeah. Does it have a title? Uh, yes, it does. It's called... Well, it might change. Uh, this is oh, called Nine Lives. It's called Tiny Pleasures. Tiny Pleasures. Mm -hmm. At on the a moment, today, it's called Tiny Pleasures. On pleasure. a point of intrigue, um, we will go into it. I don't know if we'll be back in 25 minutes with Claire Balding. Thank you, S.J. Watson! Thank you. Thank you.